Well, do you feel free? Jesus has freed us, and uh, it is great to be with you. Man, I can't, I can't believe how, t- how much I just love getting to be with you today. It's just, uh, what a joy, and we, we used to take this for granted, but um, it is wonderful to be back. Let's just, uh, let's just praise God right now in prayer for what he has done, and thank you, team. That was, that was joyous. Thank you very much. God, we just uh, come to you <clears throat> with, great, um, with great thankfulness. They were able to gather back together uh, as your people, being able to be with uh, one another, and most of all, God, do so in the power and name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. God, I pray that he be lifted up, that everyone here would understand who Jesus is. And Lord, your great plan. And Lord, I pray that no part of the kingdom of darkness would interfere with this uh, proclamation of your word, your, your Bible, which is your word to us, your letter to us, God. Would you speak deeply into our hearts today? And we, we not just be hearers, but would we, would we act upon such things? Would we be doers also? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the baseball world, it's called knocking out the starting pitcher. In the football world, it's called sacking the quarterback. In the high school, it's called taking down the bully or the queen bee. In the video game world, it's defeating the boss. In the uh, business world, it's called lopping off the tallest poppy. In fact, I know one business leader that once told me that uh, the number one position you want in a company is actually the number two position. You want vice president. You don't want president. You don't want CEO because you're going to have one of those little red dots on you if you are at the top. In the military world, it's called taking out a high-value target. In the family, it's called absentee fatherhood. It's taking out the dad. In the church, it's taking out an elder or a pastor. Wherever we look, the situation may be different, but the strategy is the same. We, we long for, in this natural world, to seek order, and we, we look for hierarchy all around us, whether it's a Fortune 500 company or the Army, Army or the community. We're looking for this big question to be answered. Who's in charge, right? We want to know who's in charge. And therefore, there's this belief that you can ta- if you can take out the leader, then you can destroy or greatly diminish an organization, team, or group. Is that true? I want you to think about that today. Is it true that if you just take out the leader, then the whole group is destroyed? Well, today I want us to open up God's Word to find out answers to that, not just so that you can have an exercise in leadership, understand leadership more. But more importantly, what does God's word say about this? If you have your Bibles, would you please turn in or turn on your Bibles if you have a a smartphone to um, Zechariah chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. And you online, we will also have that up on our screen. We're glad that you're with us, joining us today. And uh, uh, if you have found that in Zechariah chapter 13, verses 7 through 9, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to find here that Zechariah is writing the prophet after 70 years of exile. He's writing to God's people. 
Now, we've had seven weeks of isolation and lockdown. These guys had 70 years. And yet there's much, there's much um, relevance for us today as we look at this passage. And we're going to see why Christianity has lasted and the church has lasted 2,000 years ago. We're going to learn and, and how we, if we have a harsh leader, how we can go and do an end run and go to God who is sovereign with, with those leaders and take them to uh, to the Lord. And then we're going to believe that, and this is the real goal for me today. This is my big prayer for you. That you're going to go as we, after we read this passage, you're going to be really puzzled. But at the end, you're going to be praising God. So you're going to go from puzzlement to praising God. So let's read this together in Zechariah chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them, and they will say, they are my people, and they shall say what? The Lord is my God. Amen and amen. You may be seated. May God add understanding to the reading of his word on this very, very difficult passage. I want to say that it's the assertion of many uh, that God operates in a command and control form of hierarchical leadership. But does he? Does he? Does he just operate? Does God just operate by command and control? Now, before you think, John, I think this is your last Sunday here. You're preaching high uh, heresy. We need to get rid of you. I want to make it very clear that I, I, I believe absolutely God is in command and he's in control. That he is absolutely sovereign. And because he is, he doesn't need to employ a command and control type of leadership all the time. He's not like the, the Muslim God that, that has the belief that everything is predetermined and we don't have free will. Our God actually gives us a choice. And from the very beginning of the world in the Garden of Eden, he is not threatened by our non-compliance and our disobedience. He doesn't like it and he certainly will deal with it with his grace and his justice. But he's not threatened by it. He knows what we're going to do ahead of time. And he has a plan of redemption. And that gives us great hope. He doesn't feel threatened by us. And he doesn't feel like he has to hold on to a grip of power because he's never going to really lose it. In fact, the one who desires the command and control type of leadership is the devil. He even tried it with Jesus when he was on earth. Recall the third temptation of Christ. Remember when Jesus, after he had been baptized and he went off into the wilderness, the Spirit led him into the wilderness and he was tempted three times? The third temptation, the devil takes him up to a high mountain. You can see this on the screen here. Um, and, and it says that the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And all these I will give you, the devil said, if you'll fall down, and worship me. 
command and control. Satan tried to command and control Jesus by offering his, Jesus his own command and control. And this is why I want to summarize our passage back in Zechariah 13, 7 through 9 as this. The devil's plan to take us out, which is also known as God's plan for victory. How could both be true? We're going to find out today. But again, we're looking at the devil's plan to take us out, but also known as God's game plan for victory. So I'm going to give you three tactics. You can write these down if you'd like. Um, in the devil's plan to take us out, a.k.a. God's plan for victory. Here's the first tactic. Strike the shepherd. Strike the shepherd. Look at verse 7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Notice here that the, the sword is considered to have fallen asleep. It's inactive. It's not taking any action. It's like the sword has been taking a nap. But swords can spring to life quickly. I recently read that, um, maybe you know this already, the number one thing that guys have besides their bed uh, is a baseball bat. Did you realize that? A lot of men sleep with a baseball bat because they, they want to grab it in the middle of the night if a robber comes and they want to protect their family. Well, back in ancient, ancient times, they didn't have baseball bats. What did they use? They had swords. Swords were, were used to protect the family even while people were sleeping. And so... So in, in this case, back in, in verse 7 of, of Zechariah 13, in, essentially the, the picture is the sword gets unsheathed. It's awakened. And who's it aimed at? It's aimed at a really peculiar person. It's aimed at the shepherd. Yeah. Why would it be aimed at a shepherd? Now, if you recall from previous studies in Zechariah, there's been a lot of talk about shepherds. And it goes all the way back to chapter 10. In fact, look what it says in, in verse 3 of chapter 10. This is what the Lord's saying. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. So maybe this is what Zechariah 13 verse 7 is describing, is, is finding the, the undoing of those wicked shepherds. As I stated, though, before in Zechariah chapter 10, when I preached on that subject, that I think that this is actually being fulfilled in our days as the fall of our leaders and our heroes occur both inside and outside of the church. God is bringing to light what has been done in darkness. He's been giving people over to their desires. And the real type of leadership that's really been going on behind the scenes is being exposed, isn't it? The leadership that's harsh and is an us-against-the-world mentality. And they seem to live by the sword with their words and end up, will end up dying with their own words. They harass and harm others, especially the lambs in their care. Listen up. God will take care of this. So look out and repent. If you're in leadership, I say, come back to the Lord. Repent of those ways. Now, some of you may be saying, well... I need to call a timeout 
And you might question me and say, well, John, um, the big idea, and I've been teaching our youth and young adults about how to find the big idea in the passage of, of our scriptures, is, is I'm declaring today is the devil's plan to take us out, aka God's game plan of victory. And you might wonder, what does this passage have to do with the devil when he's not mentioned at all? And you'd be correct in, in saying so. Because look again, the attack in Zechariah 13, it actually comes from God, doesn't it? That's the one who's actually attacking. He's the one who turns his hand against them, which is a reference throughout the scriptures to mean judgment. God's judging this leader. And here's where it does not make sense unless we believe that God's doing something different than we expected. See, God's not punishing the bad shepherds that are listed in chapter 10, verse 3. He's actually going against his good shepherd. And where am I getting that from? Look again at verse 7. Against, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, the Lord says. The personal pronoun is directly attributed to God. As one scholar said, my shepherd indicates that this is no ordinary leader, but the Lord's gift to his people. So why? Think about this. Why would God strike out against his own shepherd? Why would he do this? And how does this relate to the devil? Well, I'll start with the second, for, the second question first and try to answer it. Fast forward to the night that Jesus was betrayed and the next day he was killed. There were a lot of swords that were involved during that whole episode, wasn't there? I hadn't thought much about this before studying Zechariah chapter 13. Think about all the swords that were at play. Uh, the temple guards, they had swords when they came to arrest Jesus. We know this from Luke chapter 22, verse 52. It describes that they had swords. The, the Roman centurions presumably had swords because they always had a sword. They always had a sword on their side. And even Jesus' disciples had a sword. Jesus said this really peculiar thing in Luke chapter 22, verse 36. But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. How would Jesus, man of peace, ask his disciples to buy a sword? What's going on here? Well, there's a lot of swords at Jesus' trial and his, or his arrest and trial and crucifixion. And we know when weapons are close by, they're often used in a heated exchange, right? When emotions get crazy, you grab a weapon. And that's what happened. This makes sense because you can't literally wake up a sword as, as Zechariah 13, 7 talks about. It's actually a metaphor, and so the metaphor of the sword refers less to a physical weapon and more to a person and a personality who are using those swords. That person and personality were one in spirit when Judas became demonized. John 13, 27 records this. Then when after Jesus had taken the morsel that Jesus had given him, it says, Satan entered into him, that's Judas, and Jesus said to him, what, you do, what you're going to do, do quickly. The awakened sword was a Satan-filled Judas. This is why I believe we can accurately say that this was the devil's plan to take us out. 
However, and here's the good news, it was God's plan to also triumph, to have victory. Remember, God not only allowed this, he ordered it. He commanded it and controlled it, but not in a programmable way like a computer would do. Instead, God used the evil desires of Satan and human beings to actually defeat evil. Like a wrestler, he used the strength of his opponent against him. That's what God did. None of this would make sense if we'd actually say that God was confusing, even conniving, if it were not for the fact that the attack was on himself. Did you catch what I just said? When God's ordering this attack, he's actually attacking himself. Why do I say that? Remember I said the Lord says that he's my shepherd. Psalm 23, verse 1, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. The Lord is what? My, my shepherd. I was at a funeral yesterday and at the graveside service, I read that. The Lord is my shepherd. Brings us much comfort, doesn't it? Jesus reiterates this in John chapter 10, verse 11, when he says, I am the good shepherd. He identifies with the fact that he is the good shepherd. And so look at back at Zechariah 13, verse 7, and we, we even have this reiterated when it says, against the man who stands next to me declares the Lord of hosts. What man can stand next to the Lord? There is none except one. And his name is what? Jesus alone. And this is why in the context of declaring Jesus, Jesus declaring in John 10, 11, that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus goes on to say that I and the Father are one. It's not confusing. They're, they're separate persons, but they're completely united. And, and this fulfills Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, that it's Jesus that's standing beside the Lord. Strike the shepherd may look like a mortal blow by the devil when in reality it was God taking on the punishment of our sins. And not just for our own salvation, as glorious as that is, but for the fact that he was going to be victorious and that we would praise him. By, ta- by Jesus taking the sword upon himself, he fulfilled all sorts of prophecy. He fulfilled the curse that was put on David his father David, so long ago. Remember David committed adultery and then ended up killing the husband of the wife that he committed adultery with, Uriah? In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, there's this statement. It says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Did you catch that? Because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So, because God raised, Jesus, raised his shepherd from the dead, it wasn't divine self-harm, but salvation for us. And he fulfills this, this prophecy. He says, I'm part of the line of David, and the sword is going to fall upon me for the sake of you. Amen and amen? 
You guys sure it didn't look this way at the time. See, the first tactic of the devil is in his plan is to destroy, to destroy us, is to strike the shepherd. The second tactic is this, to scatter the sheep. To scatter the sheep. Look at the end of verse 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones and the whole land declares the Lord. Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish and one-third shall be left alive. You see, when the shepherd is removed from them, the sheep are exposed to all sorts of hazards and enemies that will cause them to move off in every direction. You can picture this, right? You, you've, seen the, you've seen those nature shows where the predator comes in and the flock you know, scatters. The, the herd scatters. And this is exactly what happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed, didn't they? When the, the mob came to arrest Jesus, all of, disciples, all of his disciples, they, they fled. One of them fled in such a hurry that he left his garment behind. He ran away naked, as the Gospel of Mark says. That's how, how scared they were. But Jesus had actually prophesied this. This was going to happen. Using Zechariah 13, I believe, to help prepare his disciples. He wanted to give them forewarning. He wanted to soften the blow of the strike of the sword. John chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, we read this. And when they had son of him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, quoting this verse, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, usually when we finish church with a, what we call a benediction, right? We sing a hymn or a psalm, and then we go, you know, go in God's grace. Not Jesus. Jesus is like, uh, we're going to finish off with this. The shepherd's going to be struck, and all of you are going to be scattered. But bless you, right? Jesus let his disciples know they'd be scattered, and yet it doesn't make it easy. The disciples scattered at Jesus' arrest and, and, and essentially Jesus' sheep skedaddled, if I could put it that way. And then they regrouped and were said to be locked away and they were cowering in fear because of Jesus' enemies. Their leader was gone and all hope was seemingly lost. Now, I don't have any sheep that are animals. I just have people that are sheep as your pastor. I do have a dog, though. And I remember taking him, um, he's a hunting dog, and I took him hunting, and we were bird hunting, and, and uh, there was a lot of guns and a lot of people, and, and little Remy got overwhelmed by it, and he just, he, he slunk off, and he got all, he was all shivering, and he was scared. That was the picture I thought of of the disciples. They were scared. I think that's how some of us have been as well, haven't we? We have been scattered by this virus and we've, we've started to shake. We feel so isolated. And maybe especially those online are feeling this way today. We're in a state of a malaise after suffering both identifiable and ambiguous loss. We, we, don't, we can't even think about all the losses that we've had, haven't we? And as you know, that when the sheep get isolated, they can be easy pickings for predators like lions and wolves. No wonder we're called to be sober-minded, as Peter says. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, 
prowls around like a lion looking to whom he may devour. Friends, don't lose your head. There are a lot of fiery accusers out there trying to stir you up to running off to separate places, to thickets that will, will be thorns for you, which will catch you, make you caught and cause all sorts of problems for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. This is just the tactic of the devil and his plan to take us out. However, remember, I told you, this is also God's game plan for victory. To understand the victory, check out Acts chapter 8, verse 4. You can turn in there in your Bibles or we'll put it up on the screen here. And, and Acts chapter 8 describes the diaspora of the early Christians. The disciples fled Jerusalem after, first of all, uh, Jesus came back. He rose from the grave and he put his Holy Spirit in them at the day of Pentecost. And they were, they were praising God in the temple every day. But then persecution got tougher and tougher. And there was a guy named Saul who was starting to hunt down Christians. You know, the devil, the devil was coming after these Christians. It looked like the devil was winning and he'd suffered a great setback at the resurrection of Christ. But look at, look at Acts 8 verse 4. It says, now those who were scattered went about, and what does it say? Say it all together. Preaching the word. The first part of that verse looks pretty bad, doesn't it? They're scattered. The second half is glorious. They went about preaching the word. What the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. When Christians get scattered, so does the gospel across the globe. And this is why God is not just a command and control type of leader. He empowers people about putting his spirit, Jesus' spirit, the Holy Spirit, inside of us believers so that we can proclaim the gospel. And wherever we go, we are to be good witnesses. You might be isolated right now. But this could also be your greatest opportunity to share the gospel with your family as you spend more time with them. Think of it that way. Scattered with the Holy Spirit means that Jesus is with you and his gospel seeds will be scattered onto, I believe, fertile soil. There was a book a number of years ago that, called, that came out called the, uh, the Starfish and the Spider. The Unstoppable Power of Leaderless Organizations. It was called the spider because if you kill a spider by taking off its head, it's dead. Who would, who enjoys, who would enjoy that to see the, like a spider's head be done and you don't have to see that spider crawling around, right? Come on, raise your hand. I know you guys hate spiders. Put your hands up. If you, though, in the opposite, if you actually cut off an appendage of a starfish, my understanding is that it will grow back, it will multiply. And so that book revealed a number of examples of leaderless organizations, including how the terrorist group Al-Qaeda was able to survive after Osama bin Laden was killed. It showed the value of a decentralized approach to leadership and even lauded Toyota as a great example of how a company flattened the organizational structure to empower its employees. 
We have Toyota in our own town here today. Well, this morning I want to declare that the church is not a leaderless organization. The church is led by its head, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and we are his body. But the church can't be stopped by just taking out its leaders. Sure, a local expression of the church can die through moral failures or neglect of its leaders. And I actually think this is what is happening in verse 8 is described. In the whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. It's a prediction. That's hard to interpret, especially when that will happen. The principle, though, is this. And this is what I want you to grab hold of today. One-third is still left. Alive. Isn't it? Could there be a parallel to what's happening in our, in our culture today? Our church coach, Steve Adams, told us in a recent staff meeting, he says this, on average, 37%, notice that number, 37% of people higher in rural areas and lower in urban areas return to in-person gatherings when allowed. Those listening online, if, if, you, if you could be here it was glorious, wasn't it, this morning, to actually be here together, to worship God together. There's something unique that happens here. We'd encourage you to come back to a Bible-believing church. Your soul is atrophied, and you're missing out when we, when we don't worship God together. But the takeaway from verse 8 is that you can strike the shepherd, and you can scatter the sheep, but you cannot ultimately kill the church. It will prevail. And I take great comfort by this truth when I hear of heroes and famous leaders in the church that fall. Our own church here has, has known moral failure in the past, hasn't it? And yet it's, it's still here. It's rising from the ashes. Is that because we are so great? Is that because we're so resilient? No way! It's because Jesus, the chief shepherd, has risen from the grave and he has put his spirit in us. And that's the only reason why. The gospel and grace is larger than our feelings. My wife reminded me of this, this truth this week. Salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Any fruit should be credited to God alone because we must abide in him. We are the, the vine, and he, but he, I mean, he is the vine and we are the branches and we must abide in him for apart from us being connected to him, we can do nothing. So we need to abide. We need to abide. The leaderless flock may flounder and undergo severe testing and loss, but it often results in uh, this deeper assurance in our identity that we belong to God. This is exactly what verse 9 ends. It says this, the Lord is my God. Could you all say that together? The Lord is my God. If you are devastated by the failure of some of your Christian heroes, then I urge you this. Get your eyes back on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and don't get it on some author of some Christian book. The author of this book. It might be the devil's plan to take us out to scatter the sheep, 
but it's also God's game plan for victory. But I tell you, the devil is relentless. He doesn't take vacation, and he certainly doesn't listen to lockdown orders and keep socially distant from you, does he? There's a third tactic to the devil in this plan to take this out, a.k.a. God's game plan for victory, and that's the third one is refine with fire. Refine with fire. It's right there in the text. Verse 9. I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver. Both the devil and God strikes the shepherd and they scatter the sheep, but it's this third one that God alone does. He's the one who refines the he refines us with fire. The third tactic leaves the metaphor of the pasture and turns to the furnace. And at the end of that, that verse, it says he refines them as, as one refined silver and tests them as gold is tested. We go through these testing periods. The fire indicates a time of suffering. But it's not here punitive. It's reformative. God's trying to transform us. Satan wants to burn us to death and God wants to refine us by taking away all of the impurities. I have to say that this is a season that's been hard and I see the impurities and shortcomings in my own life rising to the surface through this fire. Anybody else sense that in God's life where he's been refining you? Here's the awesome God-glorifying truth that Herbert Leupold declares, a purged people is a people ready to be delivered. Are you ready to be delivered? This is exactly what we find at the end of verse 9. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them, and I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. Don't you think that this is what is happening around the globe where God is purging his church. He's purifying it. And we're going to see the true followers of Jesus emerge. So here's the scorecard. You know, at the end of a golf match, you have to sign one another's scorecard. Here's the scorecard, real clear. The devil loses badly. And God wins. What looks tragic turns into a great triumph by the Lord God. Because here's the truth. The kingdom of light always defeats the kingdom of darkness. The shepherd will always defeat the wolf. Do you believe this today? If you do, then I hope that you've gone from being puzzled about a strange passage about God striking his shepherd and turning to a place where you're just overwhelmed with how great and awesome our great Oz God is. Let's praise him now and forever more that he's exalted over all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and praise to him. God, would you now just be... Um, in our hearts and our minds, be exalted over all. Lord, maybe today, for, for some of us, this would be the, the final kind of linchpin has been taken out and we're like, the eyes have been, our eyes have been opened to the fact, the truth that your plan all along, though we see all the evil and all the, the horrible things that are going on around us, that there's great hope because of what Jesus has done, that he's defeated evil 
and that he took on our sin. You struck him, God, for our sake. Thank you for that. Will we believe in this? Would we trust in Jesus alone for our salvation? And would we praise you forever and ever because of what he has done? And we pray this in the mighty and matchless name of our shepherd and Lord and Savior, our great God, my God, and God's people said, amen and amen.